One year ago, tens of thousands of Donald Trump supporters gathered in Washington and stormed the Capitol as Donald Trump attempted to decertify the outcome of the 2020 elections. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to the Real Story episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many books, including The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance, and the Origins of the United States of America. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Socialist Program. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining. Dr. Horn, today's show on Breakthrough News airs tonight. It'll be a podcast tomorrow on all streaming services. Of course, this is the anniversary of the January 6th violent assault on the Capitol, something unprecedented in U.S. history. Donald Trump had presumably wanted to take ownership on the anniversary. He called a press conference at Mar-a-Lago, his country club resort, but, you know, perhaps wiser, tactically more shrewd minds within the Republican Party like Lindsey Graham have convinced him to cancel his press conference and they thought it would be bad for the optics. But Donald Trump said this about the cancellation. Remember, the insurrection took place on November 3rd. It was the complete unarmed protest of the rigged elections that took place on January 6th. So the insurrection, the sedition was the election. January 6th was a righteous protest to save American democracy. Anyway, a year later, Dr. Horn, Donald Trump is on the offensive. He canceled his press conference, but he is not stepping back. I thought in the days after January 6th, this man's goose is cooked. The Chamber of Commerce, big parts of the capitalist establishment said they were done with him. Twitter banned him from having his Twitter account. Republicans like McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, were saying this was Trump's fault. It looked like the walls were finally closing in on Donald Trump. But here we are a year later. A majority of the Republicans are clearly with Donald Trump. 40% of the Republican Party voters for Donald Trump, and that was 73 million people, believe that the January 6th protest was righteous, that it was an attempt to stop an election from being stolen. And the Democrats, the opposition, at least in Congress and in the White House, seem to be ever weaker. Anyway, we're witnessing the consolidation of a far-right movement. And, you know, my friend... Our friend Randy Credico, the comedian, said there's a fine line between the right, the far right, and the Third Reich. And I think he's not too wrong about that. Anyway, let's get started. 
Well, with regard to the phenomenon that you've just mentioned, I think it's important to ground this in the history of the United States of America. If you look at the 19th century, which you may recall Adolf Hitler himself said that he was patterning what he was trying to do in Eastern Europe after what the settlers had done in North America. And that particular movement in North America was not just a movement from above, spearheaded by Andrew Jackson, Mr. Trump's favorite president. His picture was on the wall in the Oval Office, recall. But if you look at the Trail of Tears, circa 1830, when the indigenous population of the Southeast Quadrant of North America were expropriated, that did not just come from above, it came from below. And so I think that what happened with regard to the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, perhaps even some leaders of the Republican Party, is that they got ahead of their base and the bases reeled them back in. And right now, we're at a very perilous moment. Let me point your listeners to an op-ed that appeared in the Toronto Globe and Mail just a few days ago by a member of the Canadian elite who suggested that Ottawa begin to prepare for a flood of U.S. refugees following a coup of November 2024, the date of the next presidential election. In that regard, Recall that just a few days ago in the Washington Post, three leading U.S. generals had an op-ed warning about the same thing and that the military would split on a left-right axis. And we all know that Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin has been seeking, in his estimation, to rout what he calls extremists who have infested the U.S. military. And what we need to see and what we need to understand, and this is one of the failures, I'm afraid to say, of some of our friends on the left, is that if you understand settler colonialism, and that's the kind of project we have here in North America, where you have an invasion by European settlers hundreds of years ago, and then unite across class lines in order to mutually feast on the land of the Native Americans, and then mutually exploit, in many instances, the free labor of African slaves, well, what's happened is that the United States has been forced to move away from that kind of system. Some of our liberals would say that this is the inevitable result of a certain kind of teleology, so to speak, that this is the way things work. You move away from the right. I would argue that global events, such as the Haitian Revolution, the rise of British abolitionism that caused the United States to move away from slavery. In the 20th century, you see the rise of a socialist camp and Washington's inability to appeal to developing nations in Africa and Latin America in particular, as long as peoples of color were being treated so atrociously. And so you have a grudging and halting retreat from Jim Crow. But now, as they see it, international pressure has lessened And so this is taking place in the context of an ever stiffer challenge from the People's Republic of China, which bids fair to leave the United States and U.S. imperialism sprawling in the dust, which is inducing even more hysteria. And I should also add in this context, of course, we could spend the next 40 minutes fact-checking Mr. Trump, but I happen to have my notes just to my left with regard to the weapons that the insurrectionists brought to Washington in January. And it includes baseball bats, handcuffs, 
construction of gallows, firearms, napalm, wireless communication, semaphore flags, hand signals, gas masks, bear spray, shields, pepper spray, fireworks, climbing gear. Mr. Trump, in the statement you just referenced, said that this was an unarmed protest. Well, this is one of the best armed, unarmed protests I've ever witnessed. And let me reiterate, before I turn the microphone back to you, that we're not out of the woods yet by any estimation. History shows that failed coups oftentimes are followed by successful coups. And given the constellation of forces in the United States of America, where you still have a substantial percentage of the Republican Party base, which basically is the majority of the settler population, continue to indulge in the big lie about a stolen election with a significant percentage saying that violence would be justifiable in order to effectuate their goals, I dare say that we have rocky times ahead. Well, I agree with you about the Republican base. I'm not sure in terms of the characterization about the entire population or even the majority of the population. When you, I'm looking carefully at the statistics provided by the Poor People's Campaign and some of those who are engaged right now in mass mobilizations. One out of every two Americans is living either in or near poverty. In terms of the way the vote played out in 2020, the number of low-income families, that is families with an income of less than 50,000, the vote was about 55% for Biden, 43% for Trump. And then there is, I think, very significant part of the demarcation in society, which is between urban America and 83% of the people in the country live in cities, and then rural or small-town America. And it's not 100%, but it's a very sharp divide. And if you look at where the mobilizations are taking place on the right and the left, they parallel this kind of urban big city and small city or rural separation. And it seems to me that what's really happened is that the racist movement, the white supremacist movement, which had been pushed back as a consequence of the civil rights revolution, the sweeping you know, righteous rebellion of black people and millions of other people who were also standing with the black community, the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 1965, et cetera, et cetera, that that political momentum created a new sort of political constellation. And the racist were not allowed to openly be racist. They had to conceal their racism, or certainly it was considered a taboo. And then you have Donald Trump coming in, running as a Republican in 2016, and that entire narrative shifted where Trump is signaling to the white racist and white supremacist forces in society, this is our time. We're going to make America great again, as he put it. And that's a signal to them, not a very veiled signal. And so you have the the resurrection of an openly racist or nearly openly racist movement. It's largely rejected, I think, by even the white working class and young populations 
in urban areas and in some of the small towns too. I mean, I was very engaged in the support and organizing for the massive uprising against racism after the killing of George Floyd. That movement swept big cities and smaller cities. But after the election, that movement receded. That movement ebbed, as you know, frequently happens in mass movements. And after the election of Biden or Trump's efforts to say this was a stolen election, the left or the progressive forces have lost momentum and then sort of lined up hoping, hoping, hoping that something good would come from the Biden administration, while the political momentum in the street has shifted to the right. And when you look at fascism, there is the element of what's going on at the base among certain parts of the population. I was looking at some of the demographics of who were the people on January 6th. Interestingly, many, many small shop owners. Of course, it took some amount of money to get to Washington in the middle of a work week on a Wednesday. And also, 52% of those arrested were from blue counties, counties that had voted for Biden, meaning these were the white racist elements in their society who were upset that there was a growing Latino population or that there was black empowerment. So... I think that we're in a tug of war, and I think that while the right wing has the momentum, certainly the social basis for struggle to defeat them does exist, although I have to say, I think waiting for the Democrats to do the right thing won't be a road to success. Well, first of all, with regard to the figures, for example, the 55-43 figure, oftentimes when those kinds of figures are deracialized that can be misleading. It's just like talking about women voting in the majority for Trump, but that's heavily dependent upon black women voting against him uh, nine to one and Euro-American women voting in favor of him 55 to 45. And with regard to the ebb and flow of movements and why that often happens, obviously it goes back to the Red Scare. You know, I wrote an entire book about the Civil Rights Congress, which was a successor of the International Labor Defense, which spearheaded the Scottsboro Defense of the 1930s, which was an opening blow against Jim Crow, an internationalized question. And it fell victim to the Red Scare. There hasn't been a successful attempt to build a movement with that breadth and depth since then. And so inevitably, you have ebb and flow of these political resistance movements and I should also say that with regard to the Red Scare itself, the liberals oftentimes were in the vanguard. And even today, many of our liberal friends still shun forces on the left, even though they read the Toronto Globe and Mail just like I do and know that these forces are coming for them. Uh, they have been trained so assiduously that they can't even really figure out what their uh, self-interests were at rest. With regard to January 6th, it was a typical multi-class formation. There were shopkeepers, there were business owners, there were military veterans, there were police officers, there were wage workers, of course, almost all of whom were descendants of the original settler class. That's what we should not obscure, because when you talk about the class question, you not only talk about the relationship of these folks to the means of production, but you also have to talk about their social categorization, and that is to say in terms of seeing some sort of a replay of settler colonialism. And I think it's also important to point out that 
there were two states that supplied a disproportionate percentage of those who were detained on January 6th. One was Florida, southern state, former slave state. The other was Texas, former southern state and slave state. And with regard to Texas, it's not only that it was perhaps the most important Confederate state, the least damaged by the U.S. Civil War, it also had the most ferocious attacks against the indigenous population. That is to say, a conscious policy of extermination, which, as noted, uh, Adolf Hitler decided to emulate. So I think it's very important to recognize the depth and profundity of this moment and to try not to obscure the poisonous aspects of what's going on as we speak. Indeed, indeed. And I'm glad you connected this rise of racism and the, the rise of the right also with, with the Red Scares. And when we think about the European immigration waves, there is the settler colonial period proper. And then later after the Civil War, when whiteness is essentially created, where up until that time, perhaps in the 1880s or 1890s, if you came from Ireland or Italy or Poland, you were considered the Irish race or the Polish race, et cetera, et cetera. But the effort to homogenize European immigration into a white nation, so to speak, that effort was in full swing. Then there's the immigration that happens in the 20th century, the earlier 20th century, and a great infusion of leftism comes from Europe. Because when we talk about the Red Scare, say, around the Palmer Raids, which is after the Russian Revolution in 1917, tens of thousands of people rounded up and deported because they're leftists, but they're deported because they're leftists who are also immigrants, mainly or largely from Europe. And even in the formation of the Communist Party, this wing of the movement is very profound and deep and is actually bringing leftism to parts of what had been a native-born United States that lack politics. And then we see the rise of the Soviet Union, the rise of the socialist camp, and the obvious, and I know you've written about this, the obvious problem that the American empire is confronting at the end of World War II, where they're insisting that the that the world followed the United States, and yet the United States is a, a system of apartheid and of institutionalized racism. And the pressure put by the communist movement, by the socialist movement, and by the socialist camp becomes a main factor or a lever requiring the ruling class in America to reconsider some of its domestic policies. But at the same time, that reconfiguration would never, well, wouldn't have gone as far as it had without the intervention of millions of people in mass protests all around the country in the 1950s and the 60s, giving again a rebirth actually of leftism in the 1960s. And so when we're looking at what's going on today, 2021, after the collapse of the socialist camp, the collapse of the world communist movement, the absence of an alternative on the left of a mass character to neoliberal globalization, carried out by the Democrats and the Republicans, there are these political vacuums that are created 
allowing the fascist or right-wing movement to fill the void. It would seem to me from a leftist point of view, the task at the moment is to fill that void. In other words, to have an, an authentic challenge from below, from the left, to rising fascism, which is not simply a manifestation of the degeneration or degenerative thinking of the rank and file, but an organic feature of capitalism itself. And when we look at what happened before World War II, where even the most progressive countries in Europe end up on the fascist side of the ledger as a result of this struggle that is ultimately and sadly, tragically won by the right. Well, another important aspect of how do we dig ourselves out of this deep hole in which we find ourselves once again, is trying to understand the lessons of history. And as noted, the way we were able to dig ourselves out of the deep hole of slavery was internationalizing the question of slavery. Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist, spent a considerable time in London, which was then the foe of Washington. They had crossed swords during the War of 1812, were in conflict over Texas, Oregon, etc., And we all know that we had staunch allies of the socialist camp and the national liberation movements in the mid-20th century, which then facilitated the erosion of Jim Crow, speaking of the great Paul Robeson, amongst others, who, by the way, in terms of internationalizing of the struggle, filed a petition at the United Nations circa 1951, charging the United States with genocide against Black people, putting U.S. imperialism in the dock. Now, of course, he suffered grievously as a result, but at the same time, it put inordinate pressure on U.S. imperialism to retreat from the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow. As we look at the international situation today, we see that Washington is in a box. It's trying to confront Russia and China simultaneously. I dare say that in these upcoming meetings that take place in Western Europe in the next few days, supposedly over the Ukraine, that Washington will probably have to cut some sort of deal with Moscow. Although, don't hold me to that because there's so much anti-Russian sentiment in the United States as a hangover from the Cold War. You never can be too sure. But since the ruling class, and indeed both parties, have a bipartisan unity with regard to confronting China, It doesn't make sense, at least from a strategic point of view, to try to confront Russia and China simultaneously. And in any case, on the front page of the Financial Times of London today is a very telling article which suggests that the European Union is upset that it's cut out of these talks about the fate of Europe involving Washington and Moscow. And I don't know if this was Moscow's intention But certainly, it's going to put enormous pressure on Brussels, the European Union, as opposed to Brussels, NATO, to try to effectuate what President Macron of France calls strategic autonomy. That is to say, inevitably, not relying so heavily upon NATO for, quote, defense, unquote. And I think that that too, when it happens, and I'm sure it will happen, particularly in the next six months, since President Macron is the head of Europe for the next six months, and he has a presidential campaign in a few months, and he needs to show that he's doing something in that highfalutin position. And at the same time, we see that China is on the march, that is putting enormous pressure on U.S. corporations like Tesla, for example, 
like Intel, like Walmart, for example, either A, these U.S. corporations are going to have to take a haircut and yield to bipartisan pressure and reduce their holdings in China, or they will continue in China, which will just heighten contradictions here at home. The problem we have now is that we have political movements that are not necessarily up to speed with regard to figuring out where the world is going and then devising a domestic political strategy to track those global events, just like our leadership did in the 19th century, just like our leadership did in the 20th century. Now, I'm hopeful and confident that that will take place. However, I should mention another point as well, which is an ironic point of optimism. And that is, if you look at fascism as it arose in the 1920s and 1930s, it was oftentimes in response to a rising labor movement, to rising left-wing parties, communist parties in particular, and the ruling elite panicked and then cut a deal with the fascists in order to squash these movements. Well, I don't know if it's good news or not, but even though there has been a strike-tober and there have been strike waves, the fact is only about 11% of the U.S. labor movement is in uh, unions. And even though we have thriving and intelligent political parties on the left, it's not clear to me that they reach the level of, say, the Social Democrats and the communists in Germany in the 1930s. So (laughs) one could interpret that as a signal that fascism will not rise, but I would not go that far because we're not talking about political recipes, for example. There is a uniqueness to this culture of the United States, and I don't mean American exceptionalism. I mean this settler colonialism, which had been endorsed by multiple classes in the settler European segment of the population, and we always have to keep that in mind. Well taken, well taken. I want to go back to January 6th itself. Let's just talk about what actually happened and why it happened. You know, the January 6th of a year ago. Donald Trump summoned the masses of his supporters to Washington, D.C. on January 6th for a large rally to take place at the Ellipse, which is technically the front door of the White House. And he was there speaking. Rudy Giuliani, the racist mayor of New York, was speaking, former mayor. They had the whole entourage speaking to the masses. There was only one reason they brought those people to Washington on January 6th, in the middle of the work week, at noon. And that was because two hours later, at the Congress, 17 or 18 blocks east of the White House, the Congress of the United States was scheduled to certify the election outcome. Now, the election was very clearly a popular win for Joe Biden, 7 million plus votes over Trump, just as Hillary Clinton had three and a half million more than Trump in 2016. But because the elections in the United States are determined based on that old slave-based system of the Electoral College, it had to be certified, not based on popular vote, but based on the Electoral College vote. And it had been certified on December 14th, And Congress ceremonially had to recertify or reaffirm that certification on January 6th. And the plan was to march on the Capitol 
at the same time that Trump was putting enormous pressure on Mike Pence, who was as vice president, the president of the U.S. Senate, to decertify or at least to raise the possibility of the recount of votes in six states. That was the plan. There's no other plan. They were coming there to stop the election. And we know that Trump had you know, called the secretary of state of Georgia and said, recount, give me the votes I need. He told his attorney general after William Barr resigned, just call the election corrupt. I'll take care of the rest, he said. Leave the rest to me. I mean, it was clear that Trump was intending to overturn the election outcome. Now, in American politics, I mean, in global politics with America at the center of global politics in the sense of being the dominant empire, the idea of stability as a form of governance is key to American imperialism. Two ruling class parties, if one loses, the other takes its place. You know, the peaceful transfer of power shows the world that it's a stable system. Maybe unfair here or there, maybe whatever, but it's stable. And thus it has a legitimacy. So for Trump to obviously try to decertify the election and prevent the peaceful transfer of power, in this case, using a large mob of people, that's a cardinal rule that was broken in American imperialist politics. And thus it was a cardinal sin. And yet there was such a placid response to Donald Trump from the state, from law enforcement. Everybody knew what was coming. I mean, January 6th was not a standalone event. I mean, there had been armed takeovers of the state building in Michigan in April and May in 2020 by people who were purportedly, you know, against the lockdown after COVID. Trump said they were liberators and emancipators. After the November 3rd election, Proud Boys were running wild in Washington, D.C. Every time there was a demonstration for black lives, there was violence because the Proud Boys were violently attacking people. Randomly, black people in downtown Washington were being beaten up by the Proud Boys who were being treated with kid gloves by the police. Everybody knew what was going on. I was in Washington at the time. Even the Black Lives Matter protests that had been scheduled for January 5th and 6th were actually canceled by the organizers because there was certainty that there was going to be bloodshed. With that said, Gerald, I'm looking at Politico. And here's this report. And I want to get your comments about and your explanation of how this could possibly happen. Again, remembering this is Trump breaking the cardinal rule about you know, maintaining the stability or the image of stability. Hundreds of law enforcement officials were prepped early for potential January 6th violence. In addition to their January 4th call, they had a conference call with 300 law enforcement officers two days before. They even had a hashtag to share information on the FBI's private communication service, hashtag CERT unrest 2021, certain unrest 2021. They knew it was coming. And yet only one fifth of the police force at the Capitol Police out of 3,500 Capitol Police officers who have one, one mission, which is to protect the Capitol building, only one fifth of them were on duty. They weren't in riot gear. The National Guard was not called out. Anyway, this could not have taken place and would not have taken place if it was leftists or black protesters or Latino protesters. Anyway, 
what accounts for this sort of placid, apathetic action by the police, by the state, given the importance of the peaceful transfer of power to America's image? Well, I think your lead-in revealed and exposed the answer. That is to say, the demographic composition of the insurrectionists who were seen and perceived as one of us, quote-unquote, us being the settler class, the Euro-American middle class and working class, for example, and therefore no alarm bells go off. It's also interesting if you start looking at the granular detail to point out the suspicious nature of the National Guard not being dispatched to the Capitol, not only from the district, but even Governor Hogan in Maryland wanted to send the National Guard, and he faced stumbling blocks there too. I take it that the Benny Thompson Committee, which is now investigating, will go into this. And also the curious aspect that the brother of Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, the former and now disgraced National Security Advisor under Trump, was in the chain of command at the Pentagon when calls were flooding in, calling for reinforcements. I think despite some useful reportage of the press, sometimes the newer reporting makes me wonder about the older reporting. For example, just the other day, the New York Times revealed another group that you can group with the Boogaloo Boys and the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters, They spoke of the First Amendment Praetorians, which they had never mentioned before. And apparently they were a very important group in this regard. It made me wonder, well, why haven't they told us about them before? Now, I should also mention, perhaps on a more positive note, that in intellectual circles, there is much more ferment now trying to draw reasonable inferences and conclusions from January 6th. What I mean is that you have a number of leading law professors at Harvard and Columbia says, you know what? The United States is not that democratic after all, which of course is <laughs> shouldn't be a revelation, but it is given all the propaganda. I mean, given what you've just enunciated with regard to electoral college, given the rural bias of the U.S. Senate where a vote in Wyoming is maybe 40 times more valuable than a vote for Senate in the state of California, But the problem is this 18th century contraption known as the U.S. Constitution is so difficult to amend that I'm not sure what we're going to be able to make of that good news. I should also mention as well that uh, I've been paying close attention to this documentary, American Insurrection, that has a second iteration on PBS. Of course, its first iteration was last year. And the filmmaker tends to express the same kinds of liberal nonsense, quite frankly, that is all too endemic. For example, he had talks with the Michigan militia, some of whom were on trial supposedly for trying to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer after she was denounced by President Trump. And like many liberals, he tends to portray these people as just sort of disgruntled social democrats, just sort of misunderstood Green New Dealers. People seem to have a hard time understanding this sort of proto-fascism, and I guess it's sort of a crude Marxism that leads people to say, well, these people, they're not rich, they're actually not doing very well, so obviously they should be part of the progressive movement. 
I'm not sure that that's a fair inference to draw, particularly in light of the fact, in terms of going back to January 6th, that I think it was not only designed to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, I think liquidation was in mind as well. I don't think that a gallows was formed on the grounds of the Capitol by accident. I don't think that the chant of hang Mike Pence was an accidental chant. I took careful note of Congressman James Clyburn of the Congressional Black Caucus, who suggested that the invaders of the Capitol did not go to his office where his name was on the door. They went to his hideaway, which does not have his name on the door, looking for him. That Congresswoman Presley of Boston, also the Black Caucus, talked about how panic buttons were stripped out of her office somehow, mysteriously, before this insurrection took place. I think, as far as I can tell, that Congressman Thompson's committee is zeroing in on complicity on the part of members of Congress, including Paul Garsar, who, as you know, only recently put out this graphic where he was killing Congresswoman AOC of Queens. And then, of course, there's Mo Brooks of Alabama, uh, Jim Jordan of Ohio, uh, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. To a certain extent, this was an inside job and an outside job. And I hope and I trust that at least we can get the facts on the table before November 2022. Yeah, definitely an inside job. And we don't know how high up it went. I mean, there was that extraordinary letter that was sent on January 12th, 2021, by all eight generals who make up the Joint Chiefs of Staff to every member of the 1.3 million member U.S. military that told the members what happened was a violation of the Constitution. It was unlawful. It was seditious. Those were the words used by the, the military. And obviously, they would not have done that if they weren't alarmed about the intervention of military forces in the political process. There's a big reminder there. It's illegal for you, for us, for the military to intervene. But clearly, that had to be happening. And that had to account for one of the reasons that only one-fifth of the Capitol Police Department was on duty that day and not in riot gear. That's not the rank and file deciding that. That's high up. That's people in the chain of command who are making important decisions. And we don't know and we won't know yet how far and how wide this operation actually went. Peter Navarro in the Rolling Stone speculates that if there hadn't been the violence inside the Capitol, they would have succeeded with the other members of the Republican Party and pressuring Pence to actually decertify or not certify, let's put it this way, not certify the election outcome in six of the states, sending them back to the states, and then hoping that Republican state legislators would do their magic in terms of sort of decertifying or recounting or something that to stop the election. That was the plan. That was the operation. It seems to me, Gerald, as we start to come to the close here, that the specter of fascism is... As you said, there's got a historical continuity in terms of the history of racism and white supremacy in the United States. There's a 
a feature of this, a deep strain of this that's rooted even when the United States was technically a democracy. It's got this fascistic element. And then there's the other part of the rise of fascism, which is conjunctural, which is not the same or simply linked to the history. We're looking at the the imagery of the KKK marching down the streets of Washington, D.C., 20,000 of them during the Woodrow Wilson administration. And Wilson came in, as you well know, and resegregated or fired fired most of the black federal workers or resegregated the couple departments that weren't successful at firing all the black workers. So there's this strain, this profound, deep, dominating strain of racism in American capitalism. And then we have the conjunctural element where fascism takes power in the name of uh, extra-legal or anti-democratic or certainly the suppression of democracy as we know it at certain moments when the capitalist class is in crisis. Now, you mentioned in Germany and Italy, the unresolved class struggle where the left was strong enough to keep fighting but not strong enough to take power. Ultimately, the bourgeoisie makes a deal with the fascists to regiment, meaning to destroy the left. Hitler didn't come to power through a Nazi revolution or a Nazi insurrection. The keys to the castle were given to him by the right center politicians. And then, and only then, are the fascists able to, by wielding state power, do their thing. And of course, we know the genocide and the war, World War II, that follows. Almost 100 million people die. But in the United States, if there is a feeling, not that the left is about to take power, or that the left is a dire threat, which was the case in Italy and Germany, but that the wheels are coming off, that the system of governance for the empire is losing legitimacy and sort of frantic or extreme elements start to be considered, I could easily see big parts of the American ruling class opting for that sort of fascist dictatorship. Certainly there was a very pro-Nazi sentiment in the U.S. ruling class in the 1930s prior to World War II. And for us as progressive people and for leftists who know what fascism is or even what bourgeois democracy with its fascistic tendencies is, that there is a compelling need for a united front against fascism. And it can't be simply a defensive fight against fascism. It has to also have a positive agenda for social change to meet the unmet needs of the population so as to rally a population, you know, half of which is now living, in spite of the fact it's the richest country in the world, living in or near poverty. It seems to me that we can't wait for the Democrats. We can't be waiting for Joe Biden. It's not that all the Democrats, we can't look for alliances with some forces of the left, but we have to be able to create a massive movement. And we could see Last summer, not so long ago, 18 months ago, that there is also the material basis for the rise of a new movement. It did ebb, but it did also exist. And you look at the Bernie Sanders movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Occupy movement. If we look at the last 10 years, we shouldn't, you know, I don't want our audience to be simply hand wringing and thinking all is lost when the battle, the final battles haven't yet been fought. Indeed, all is not lost by a long shot. 
I think we have more than one arrow in our quiver, not least of which is that I think there is considerable sympathy overseas with regard to our movement here, because we share the same foe. I've spent time in the last 45 minutes talking about the transatlantic relationship. And there, as already noted, there is considerable dearth of sympathy towards Washington. Magnify that the closer you get to the equator, for example, the closer you get to Latin America or Africa or Southeast Asia, for example. That is one of our clearest and most vibrant advantages. I should also say that in terms of an analysis, once again, to return to the 19th century, the idea in the nascent Republican Party, which only had arisen in the 1850s and was the party of anti-slavery, to a certain degree, the party of abolition, the two should not be confused, was that the nation would have difficulty existing half slave and half free. So what happens, you have a civil war and the nation emerges as half free, half proto-fascist, because that was followed by an exterminationist campaign against the indigenous population. It was followed by a crude reactionary upsurge by the armed wing of the Democratic Party known as the Ku Klux Klan, aimed at depriving Black people of the right to vote, of ousting Black people from office, etc. And what was interesting about that period, both the slave period and the post-slave period, is that those in the settler class who were not willing to accept the status quo oftentimes were liquidated themselves. And I think what we have to impress upon our centrist friends our liberal friends, is that they should be very careful that they should be joining with the left in this united front against fascism because they're coming for them too. As a matter of fact, when I read that article in the Toronto Globe and Mail about Canada preparing for a flood of U.S. refugees, although I may be mistaken, my first impulse was to think, well, in terms of people fleeing, they'll come for the liberals first before they come for me. So maybe I'll have a few weeks lead time. I'm not so sure. But the point is not that they're just coming for me. They're coming for these liberals and centrists as well. And they need to realize that. And they need to realize that these attacks upon electoral workers who basically lubricate the electoral machinery, which is a Republican Party goal, the attack upon the secretaries of state in the various states who administer elections. They're trying to rig the game. They're trying to rig the game so that all of these dire, ghoulish, ghastly prognostications that we hope will not come to pass will, in fact, will come to pass. And if there is one commonality that I see with regard to fascism, be it in Europe, or Chile, or perhaps even in the United States, is that the liberals and centrists in all of these countries, they tend to underestimate the strength of the right, for example. I happened to be in Chile just before September 1973 and was constantly assured and reassured by liberal friends that democracy was deeply entrenched in Chile. 
and that one did not have to worry about any sort of fascist coup. About two or three weeks after I departed on September 11, 1973, of course, you had the Pinochet coup. I think one of the main issues we're going to have to guard against are these cockamamie notions about democracy being deeply entrenched in the United States, and somehow that'll be the guardrail that prevents fascism from coming to power. As noted, even law professors at Ivy League law schools are now beginning to debunk that nonsense. And so it's well past time for others to join with them. We were joined today by Professor Gerald Horn. Gerald, thank you so much. Gerald is the author of many, many books. One of them is The Color of Fascism, Lawrence Dennis, Racial Passing and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism in the United States. That was published in 2006. He's also the author of The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. Gerald Horn, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.